listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today's lesson is in John, second chapter, verses 1 through 12. Please stand as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his sons, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. It's good to gather with you this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and it's just a a joy to be able to worship with you today on this beautiful fall Sunday that we're having. Uh, If you're new to Sojourn, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We'd love to be able to meet you. On the uh, second and fourth Sunday of every month, we have a Connect meeting, and so that'll be happening today after the service. So if you've been coming for a few weeks or this is your first Sunday here, we'd love to have you come out to that uh, after we gather together this morning. But as we begin our time in the Gospel of John this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and some of us come before you this morning weary and heavy laden. It's been a difficult week or a difficult few months or a difficult few years for us, and we feel the weight of that today. And God, some of us come this morning full of faith, and when we are experiencing blessing in our life right now and seeing you at work in our lives and the lives of others this morning, and we're in awe of that. But God, I pray that whether we're coming in weary or full of faith this morning, that you would give us both rest and joy in you today. God, we pray that we would come before you and we would set aside distractions. I know that whether we're coming weary or full of faith, that oftentimes we can be distracted. And so God, I pray that even now in this moment that you'd help us to set aside those distractions, whether literally or figuratively, so we might hear from you today. God, we believe your word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword that can divide us in half, expose us before you. So God, we ask, we invite you to do that today. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to work in this time, that you would expose us before you, not so that we'd experience shame, not so we'd experience condemnation, but we'd experience grace. 
Because you, a holy God, has made a way for us to be made right with you, reconciled, transformed. So as we walk through this story, as we seek to see Jesus rightly today, I pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And God, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in that. Thank you for the gift of this time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of my uh, favorite parts about being a pastor is having the, the privilege, the honor, the joy of being able to officiate weddings. I think in the last, I don't know, however many years, 15 years or so, I've been able to uh, officiate 20 to 25 different weddings. And some of those being here at Sojourn. And we, Amy and I love being able to journey with a couple through premarital counseling. But man, I love the wedding ceremony. There's so much meaning in the wedding ceremony and what's taking place as a husband and wife join together, making vows before God and before their friends and family. But man, I don't just like the wedding ceremony. I like the party after the wedding ceremony. If you've been to a wedding that I've been at, then you know that Amy and I love to dance. There are some pastors who dip out early from receptions. We like to shut them down if we can and be there on the dance floor till the end. It doesn't matter if we're dancing and rapping to House of Pain's Jump Around. I know all the words of that, by the way. Uh, or doing the wobble or jump, jumping around dancing to one of JT's latest hits. We love being out there on the dance floor having a good time and celebrating with this couple this momentous occasion in their life as they join together as husband and wife. And weddings are meant to be that. They're meant to be celebrations. They're meant to be something that we celebrate and come around one another with and rejoice in that. And that's been the case across cultures for centuries. You can go to almost any culture, at least the ones that I know of, and weddings are a big deal. And people come together and the whole town, the whole village, the whole community will come together to see someone join together to celebrate a wedding. And there's a reason for that. It's because God said that marriage is good. And God created marriage as being a normal part of his creation before sin entered into the world. And so that's something we continue to see celebrated both by believers and non-believers, those who know Christ and those who don't yet know Christ, that this is good for us as human beings. Well, as we come to this next part of our sermon series, we've been walking through the Gospel of John over the last few weeks in this sermon series called Seeing Jesus. And as we walk through this, what we're trying to do is we read the Gospel of John, whether we've read this story of Jesus' life many, many times or we're reading it for the very first time, the goal in this is that we would really see who Christ actually is. Not our concept of who he is, not who we've thought he is, but who he actually is as he's revealed on the pages of Scripture to us. That he would literally jump off the pages and we would be able to fix our eyes on him. Well, as we've been journeying through that, we come to this little vignette in the larger story of Jesus' life where Jesus is at a wedding celebration. And Jesus is at a party seeing a husband and wife join together. And things are going along fine until the wine runs out. Now, what happens in this story can seem amazing to us. It may seem strange to you. But the bigger question for us today to try and answer today is why does it happen at all? Why does Jesus do what he does in this story? And does it actually matter for us, for our life here and now? Well, the short answer is yes, it matters. Everything that Jesus does matters to us. And it matters because Jesus doesn't do things by accident. He doesn't do things haphazardly in his life. He is intentional in his words. He's intentional in his actions. He's purposeful in relationship. And so when Jesus does something, we need to pay attention to it. 
We need to ask ourselves, why is he doing it, and what does it mean for us? So what he does in this story that we're going to look at this morning is not some throwaway story to be like, well, that's kind of cool. That would have been neat to be at. No, it's a glimpse into the significance of the very Son of God who has come to us to rescue us from sin and death. So listen, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, whether you've heard this story a ton of times in your life, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time this morning, I hope that as we read this story of this wedding celebration, that we will lean in and we'll seek to glean the, the, the grace and the greatness and the goodness of our God as is revealed to us in Christ. And that by doing so, that we'll be led to have awe and thanksgiving for who God is, the God who is always at work in our lives. So let's, with that, let's go ahead and dive into John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And may we see Jesus clearly today. What I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this story and really make sure we're understanding the details of what's going on in this story and then ask ourselves that question, why does this matter? Why does this matter? John begins by telling us that three days later there was a wedding. This means that this wedding celebration took place in the same week that John the Baptist has announced that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This wedding celebration is taking place in the same week that Jesus calls his first disciples, which we looked at last week as we gathered together. This wedding takes place in Cana, another town in Galilee near Nazareth. Most archaeologists believe it's about eight miles away from where Nazareth is. And weddings happen all of the time, but this wedding is significant because Jesus is at this wedding. And his mother and some of his disciples are also invited Wedding celebrations then were huge affairs as they are now, but even more so maybe than they are in our culture today because at a wedding celebration in a place like Cana, like the whole town shows up. Like this is a big deal for everyone in that community to be there at this celebration because of the goodness of marriage. Now, Jesus wasn't invited because he's Jesus, right? They weren't like, man, we've got a good guest list. If we could get a few VIPs in here, this party would be ridiculous, No, Jesus is invited along with his mother, along with his disciples, because Jesus is a friend or a family member of whoever it is that's getting married. Nobody really knows fully who Christ is yet. But a problem arises. We see at the beginning of verse 3 that the wine runs out. Now, Amy and I have been married for about 16 and a half years. And when we got married, yeah, we can amen that. Um, when we got married, we ha- I had just turned 22 and she was about to turn 22. So we actually didn't have any wine at our wedding, but we had a ton of food. And we had kind of a buffet style deal going on and we had an abundance of food. Some of my groomsmen who were still in college, I remember this very distinctly. We had uh, shrimp at our reception. At the end, there was so much food left, they went and found shoe boxes and were filling them up with shrimp. I mean, these are college guys. They're like, I'm taking this home. So we had an abundance of food at our wedding. I've also been to weddings where the food's run out. And at the end of the day, that might be inconvenient. It might be a little bit like, oh man, that's a bummer that we ran out of of the food that was left at the wedding. I didn't get to get seconds. But at the end of the day, it's not really that big of a deal. But in this situation, in the culture that Jesus is walking in, that he's living in at this time, this would have been a huge deal for the wine to run out. See, wedding celebrations weren't just a few hours. Wedding celebrations in Jesus' day went on for days, sometimes a whole week. I mean, they were partying day after day, celebrating the joining together of a husband and wife. 
And it was the groom's responsibility to provide the food and the drink, which is very contra-American culture, which says it's the bride's responsibility. Back in Jesus' day, it was the groom who was responsible for providing all the food and all the drink. And he provided good wine. He wanted people to celebrate, not grape juice, wine, at the party to be able to celebrate with this, all these people, the whole community that had come out to celebrate with this. And so running out of wine in the midst of a culture that was supposed to be celebrating something for a whole week, it would have brought about shame. It would have been super embarrassing to be just a day into, maybe two days into the celebration, and there's no more drink. On top of that, they could actually, people could level lawsuits against the party thrower for running out of food. Like, that's how serious they took partying, right? Like, you can imagine, I'm taking you to court because you ran out of food or you ran out of wine. So this is a big deal to be at this point in the wedding celebration and not have any more wine. So what happens? Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, by the way, is never mentioned by name in the Gospel of John, she comes to Jesus, and, and she doesn't ask a question. She just makes this simple statement, there's no more wine. I mean, maybe she's kind of helping out with the wedding planning and all that going on, or she's a family member or a friend, or maybe she's just a concerned party goer. We don't exactly know why she feels the need to come to tell Jesus this. And her, her statement can be a little bit difficult to understand exactly what she's trying to ask or what she's trying to get at and communicate to Jesus. She doesn't explicitly ask him to do anything, but she definitely seems to be hinting at him to do something. Not because she's seen Jesus do miracles before. He, he hasn't. He lived a life like you and I growing up adolescent, but he did so with perfect character, the perfect obedience. But Mary, we have to remember that she remembers what the angels said to her. When she was told that she was going to bear this child, she remembers what they said, that he's going to be this redeemer, this Messiah, this, this God-man come in human flesh. And, and, and I'm sure that still is very confusing to her, but she knows that that's sticking in her mind. I don't think that's something that she would have forgotten. And so she looks to Jesus in his perfect character, and asks him, alludes to him, with helping out at this wedding. Not sure exactly how or what he can or will do. So how does Jesus respond to this veiled request from his mom? Verse 4, and it said, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now at first, the way Jesus responds can seem kind of rude. Like, depending on how the tone in your internal voice goes, you might hear Jesus saying, like, Woman? What does this have to do with me? But this is where it's lost in translation a little bit. When we translate from Greek to English, that phrase, the language there, it doesn't communicate the same way that really we should get the sense of it uh, as we read it in English. Now, what he says here is more like madam or ma'am, but it's definitely not familial. Right? He doesn't call her mom or mother. He, he's kind of referring to her a little bit uh, from a distance, so it's not rude, but it is an abrupt way to address his mother and what, he's saying, what she's saying to him. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus responds in a way that communicates to Mary and communicates to us that he isn't a genie in a bottle. He, he isn't someone we can just come and say, I, I demand this from you. You must give this to me. I need this right now. And Jesus is just there to do whatever we ask. No, Jesus will be and is only directed by the will of his Father. There is one voice that Jesus 
listens to as the Son of God, and that is God the Father for what he's supposed to do. Now Mary, as we see throughout scriptures, could be honored, but she's never deified. She could be respected for who she is and what part she plays, but she doesn't have an inside track to Jesus. Like because she's Jesus' mother, she gets hooked up more than other people. In fact, I think what Jesus is beginning to communicate to her and to us is that Mary is just in much of need as we are for Jesus to be her mediator, to be the one that will stand in her place. But he says something else that's packed with meaning. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And there's twofold meaning to this. The first is, when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about the fact that his public ministry hasn't begun yet. He hasn't sought to to draw a crowd around him to start to follow him. At this point, the only people that really seem to have a clue about who Jesus actually is, is John the Baptist and these few followers that we learned about last week. And so he's saying, my hour has not yet come. I'm not not prepared. I'm not ready yet to, to reveal myself to the world fully. But in addition to that, what this is pointing to is what his public ministry would ultimately lead to. Almost every time Jesus uses the language of my hour, he's referring to the cross. When he would go and be nailed to a Roman cross, executed with his hands and his feet, nailed into this wood, these wood beams, suffocating, dying, being crushed under the weight of the physical weight of that, but also the eternal Wrath of God being poured out on him on that cross. I mean, have you ever been preoccupied by a thought of what lies ahead? Maybe you've had a day or a week where you know you have a test coming up, and all you can think about is your biology test. All you can think about is your math test. Like, am I going to do well enough? Do I know enough information? Maybe you have a job interview coming up or a big presentation at work, or a a conversation you're going to have, or you're hoping to ask that girl out, and that's all you can think about is just kind of consuming, preoccupying your thoughts. We can imagine what lies ahead for the Savior is always on his mind. Even at this point, Jesus is thinking about his death. But his curt response to the prompting of his mother to help some friends out at a wedding, it gets a strong response. And here's why. Because Jesus knows that the most significant way that he can help this bride and groom and the most significant way he can help his mom will mean he has to die. They'll have to go to a cross and be crucified for them. So Jesus responds in this way to Mary, and we see that Mary's still expectant of what Jesus might do. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So what happens? Let's read verses 6 through 10 again. It says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So what's going on here? Jesus' mother tells him the wine has run out, and so Jesus seeks to do something about this. And he sees these six stone 
purification jars that are huge. They said they're 30 gallons, and he calls these servants to fill them up with water. I mean, that would have taken a little bit of time, right? They don't have running water. They're filling it up over time. That's 180 gallons of water. And he fills them up, and you can imagine the servants going over, and he's like, hey, just get a spoonful of that. Go take it to the MC. They fill it up, not really knowing what Jesus wants with that. He walks over to the master of ceremonies, the master of the feast, who takes a sip of this and is like, whoa, this is some good stuff. It's really high-quality wine. This isn't $3 wine from Trader Joe's. Like, this is really good stuff, highly rated on wine enthusiast rating chart, right? Like, he's going, like, this is legit. And he's confused by that because he goes to the bridegroom who is in charge of all the food, and he goes, hey, man, like, listen up. Like, most of the time, people, they, they might give you a little bit of good wine at the beginning, but then after people have drunk freely, and maybe either have had too much to drink or just enjoying themselves, like their palates are warmed up, and so they're fine with having cheap wine now. Like, bring out the Trader Joe's three bucks, right? Like, they're good to go, but you did the opposite of that. Like, the wine you had before was good, but now you have really, really good wine. We're like two days into this thing, and you're hooking everybody up now? Like, what's up with that? He doesn't know what's going on. The groom certainly doesn't know what's going on, but Jesus knows what's going on. This is insane that this would take place in this way, but I don't want us to miss something critical that we start to learn about Jesus in this. First, look at who Jesus is hanging out with, who he's socializing with. Later on in Jesus' life, he would be criticized as being a glutton and a drunkard. Not because he ate too much, not because he drunk too much, but he spent time with people who did. That's the kind of people Jesus hung out with. Not those that were buttoned up and had their life looking perfect on the outside, but those who were in desperate need of redemption. Jesus is fine hanging out with those kinds of people. But also look at who Jesus serves and reveals himself to. Who knows what's happened here? Jesus' mom knows probably because she's already talked to him about this. The servants know, which John very specifically makes sure we know about. The disciples. The MC doesn't know. The groom doesn't know. Certainly everyone drinking the wine at the party has no idea what has just taken place. Jesus doesn't reveal himself first to power people. He doesn't reveal himself to those who have it all together. No, he reveals himself to the least and the lowly. I mean, these are servants that he's revealing himself to first. And I love the upside down way that Jesus does stuff. Like he's born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth from this little podunk town. He does everything upside down. If we were trying to plan all this out, we would do it completely different. We'd be like, we need to get TV spots during the MLB playoffs so everybody's watching this. We need to make sure everybody's paying attention to this. Like, Jesus is here. That's not how Jesus does things. He reveals himself to the least and lowly because that's who Jesus comes for. But here's where we also have to be careful in the text like this. We have to be careful when we're looking for meaning and purpose in this text or any text of the scriptures for that matter, we have to be careful that we don't get lost in the details, looking for meaning under the wrong rocks. Like some commentators and scholars are like, the six jars, the fact that there's six of them must be significant. I don't really think it's significant. There's just six of them there. No, the point of this text isn't to find secret or hidden meaning in things. The point of the text is given to us in verse 11. This the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John doesn't call this a miracle, though it is. 
And it isn't just a display of divine power, though it's that also. John calls it a sign. This is a theme that we'll see him tease out more throughout this story. What do signs do? They, They point to something. They give us direction about something, information about something. If we have a street sign, it labels a road for us or a street for us. Arrows point us in certain directions. One sign says, this is the bathroom or this is where the trash goes or whatever it happens to be. Signs give us direction. They give us information. They point us to something. And this sign is pointing to the glory of Christ. Revealing his glory is revealing the core of who Jesus is. He's God who's taken on human flesh. It's a display that he is the sovereign creator who rules and reigns over the very material world that he made. It displays the fact that he is a gracious king who cares for the needs of his people, even those at a wedding in a small town in Galilee. And what's the result of this sign? The disciples saw what Jesus did And they believed in him, which is the purpose of this book, to see Jesus and believe in him. Now, you may think, well, what what kind of belief is this? When I think about belief, this isn't belief like believing in the Easter bunny or believing in the tooth fairy. This is believing where you are entrusting yourself to someone, where you are placing your trust in your entirety of yourself, wholly and fully in the object of your faith. It's believing and trusting that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And he came to do what he said he came to do. Now we may look at this and think, well, wait a minute. Just last week we saw that these disciples believed, so why is it saying they're believing again? Well, that's the reality of our life with Jesus. It's ongoing belief, ongoing faith. It isn't placing your faith in Jesus at some point in the past and then kind of leaving him there and then moving on. No, belief in Christ is something we do every moment of every day. We're continuing to believe in Jesus. And the faith of the disciples is strengthened in this moment. They are continuing to believe Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The same is true for us. Are you believing Jesus today? Are you believing him today? Is the confidence of your relationship with Christ based off a past experience or a present reality of who Jesus is and what he's done? Jesus said to the disciples that they would see greater things. Here's the first one. But I think another question we need to ask is why does he do this as his first sign? Like of all the things that Jesus could do, to reveal himself to the world. Of all the things that he could do to start to draw more attention to who he is and what he came to do, why does he choose a wedding in a small town in Galilee, in obscurity, again, a few people know, and with wine? Jesus is always intentional. He's always purposeful in what he does. Mary doesn't twist his arm to make him do this. He's already kind of gently rebuked her in this. But there must still be a very specific reason that this sign is Jesus' first sign. And I think it's good for us to remember why Jesus came at all, why he was sent by the Father in the first place. And Jesus didn't come primarily to be a good example to us, that we would look at Jesus' life and think, well, that's a good life to follow. Jesus lived an exemplary life, but his exemplary life crushes us because you and I can't actually live the way that Jesus lived. 
apart from the Holy Spirit working in us. Jesus walked in perfect obedience. We can't go a day without rebelling against God in some way. No, Jesus came primarily to lay down his life for us precisely because we can't live up to the perfect and right standard of holiness and obedience that God calls us to. Jesus came to redeem those who had rebelled against God. He came to restore the brokenness of our world and our lives. Jesus came to seek and to save not those who thought they have it all together, but the lost. And God promised that he would do that way before Jesus was born to a young woman in Bethlehem. In Genesis chapter 3, he says the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. He goes to Abraham and calls him and says, I will bless the nations through you. He tells David that there will be a king who will sit on the throne forever and be the Messiah, be the Redeemer, be the Restorer of my people. He gave us the law to point out the fact that we can't live up to the perfect standards of holiness that God calls us to. Yet in the midst of that law, he gives sacrifices to say you must have someone atone for you in your sin in order to be absolved of that. But it had to be done over and over and over again. All of those things were always meant to point to Christ as the final and ultimate substitute for us. But God's people throughout history walked away from him over and over and over again. In the midst of darkness and disobedience, they turned from God, but he never ultimately turned from them. Our God is always at work, always faithful to his plans and his purposes. God spoke through the prophets, and he spoke through the prophets of this future day of restoration, this future day of salvation. I want you to listen carefully to this. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up at a wedding in Cana. From the book of Amos, chapter 9. If you haven't read the book of Amos in a while, it's one of the minor prophets. Amos is actually a farmer, not professionally a prophet, but God calls him and speaks through him. This is what he says. Behold, the days are coming, it's looking to the future. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. Listen to this. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What God is saying through Amos is there's going to come a day where the fullness of restoration comes. Shalom will be restored. There'll be peace amongst creation between human beings and between us and God. And he's using these metaphors of mountains flowing with wine and people being rooted in a place, being together, and cities being rebuilt, and there being restoration that takes place. But then listen to this in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The result of sin will be done away with. He has to be looking forward to something in the future. And then it says this, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us have a party and celebrate redemption. Do you see what's happening then at, the, happening then at this seemingly inconsequential wedding in Cana? Jesus is announcing to a small group of people that the time has come. The wine is beginning to flow. Salvation is here. But he didn't just do it in some haphazard way. He took purification jars, these jars that would have been used by the Jewish people to wash themselves, to be cleansed, so that they could partake of this food. It was part of the law for you to be cleansed so that you could be clean instead of unclean and participate. And he takes those, the water in those jars and turns them into wine. What did Jesus do in this moment? He wasn't just trying to keep the party going. He relieved the shame of the bride and groom. He relieved their shame by providing for them. And he uses these purification jars to do so, to declare that he's the one that can actually do that. He's the one that can take away sin and shame. Listen, I think all of us at different points in our life are trying to prove something. We're trying to communicate to the world, communicate to ourselves, communicate to God that we are good enough that we have it together, that we know what we're doing with our lives, that we know how to fix our problems. The reality is we always come up short. Our lives are often a mess. We try to earn redemption. But this sign shows us that we don't need to do that. We can't actually do that. What we can do instead is rest in the reality of the one who provides abundant joy and abundant life. Jesus would be the substitute for purification. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood shed for sinners like you and me. And even now in how he does this, he displays superseding glory. The old is gone and the new has come. Now there's a now and a not yet to this miracle, to this sign. It looks ahead to the cross as Jesus would be crucified, his blood poured out for the redemption of humanity. But it looks beyond that to the new heavens and the new earth. Where Revelation chapter 19 tells us that the wedding feast of the Lamb will take place. A wedding feast that will expound and express the abundant grace of our perfect and holy God. The grace that he's lavished on us through the life of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus will be the ultimate MC at this party at the ultimate wedding feast. And it'll be a wedding celebration like none other that we've ever seen before. A wedding celebration, just like Isaiah declared, where there'll be no more weeping, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more sin. It will be the celebration of all celebrations, the party of all parties overflowing in abundant joy and everlasting life for those who are in Christ. Jesus, his mother, and the disciples, they were invited to this wedding celebration. And that's the nature of weddings, right? You're invited. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, that this party that Jesus is going to throw will have no wedding crashers. 
The invitation, though, it's out there right now. It's waiting for your response. It isn't for the elite and the privileged. It isn't for performers and pretenders. It isn't for those who have it all together or think they have enough information or knowledge or have it all figured out. It's available to anyone and everyone who will turn away from their sin and turn away from confidence in themselves and place it fully and completely in Christ. If you don't yet know Jesus, what's keeping you from coming to him now? Don't wait until a better time. Look at him now. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Christ has done it. Come to him today. And if you already know Jesus, what keeps you from coming to him today? Or what will keep you from coming to him tomorrow? Are you wrestling with sin in your life right now? Some habitual sin that you seem to struggle with over and over and over again? Is that keeping you from coming to Christ again? Or maybe it's shame in your life right now, that you feel shame for something you have done. Maybe for some of you, you feel shame for something that's been done to you. What's keeping you from coming to Christ right now? Is it the law that you're still trying to earn your way to God? You're getting crushed? Maybe it's just distraction in your life, even good things that are keeping you from coming to Jesus today. Whatever it happens to be, listen to these truths as we close. From Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Some of you have memorized this over the last few months. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, in other words, we have confidence that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that, why? Why is it brought to nothing? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana, he was announcing that the Messiah had come and salvation was at hand. He was bringing this about, that unity in Christ was possible. The cross and the resurrection was coming. It points to the beginning of the true wedding feast, a feast that will come to fruition when Jesus comes again to bring us all the way home when we get to see him in his full glory. But today, if you're in Christ, You've responded in faith. You've placed your faith in Christ. You believe in him. He's given you new life, yet we were waiting for the, for the full party to begin. It's like, kind of like we're in the cocktail hour right now. Like we know there's a celebration coming. We know the music is about to start. We know that the wine is going to begin to flow and the food is going to be out there and it's going to be in abundance. But right now we live in this place where life is difficult and life is hard. And you're experiencing that, whether it's the brokenness of the world around you or even brokenness in your own life. It's okay to admit, to acknowledge that life is difficult, that life is hard. You experience real loss in this life. When we look at a story like this from John chapter 2, when we see what Jesus does at this wedding celebration, I don't want us to think that we have to just wait to rejoice then. We can rejoice now. When we look at this story and see what it means when we set our minds on Christ, when we see Jesus, 
even in the midst of difficulty in this life, I hope, I pray that it would lead you to awe, that it would lead you to thanksgiving, that it would lead you to shouts of hallelujah and praise the Lord because you have hope. You have hope for the day when we will sit at the table together drinking from a cup that will never run dry. Sit at the table together basking in the glory of our Redeemer, being made whole in Christ, united with him forever and ever. But you know what? In the midst of the distractions of this life, in the midst of the difficulties of this life, we need our minds and our hearts to be realigned over and over again. We need to be reminded. We need to see Jesus again. And one of the ways that God and his kind providence and his grace helps us to persevere in faith is by taking of the, partaking of the communion meal. We're given this simple, tangible, physical illustration and reminder of what Jesus has done. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was having a Passover meal with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and said to them, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Later on in the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. It's poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of, meal, of me. This communion meal is a meal that's been passed on to all who believe through the centuries, practiced by people from all over the world. There are brothers and sisters right now around the world that are eating the bread and drinking the cup. But it's a meal that should leave you encouraged yet unsatisfied. Right? We don't have a full meal right now. You're going to take a little piece of bread and a small cup. It should leave you wanting more. It should leave you unsatisfied because this is just a teaser trailer for what's to come. It's just pointing you to the fact that one day we will have an abundance to eat and drink with one another. It's a reminder that one day Jesus will come again and make all things new. We take it every single week as a church because we need to be reminded every single week, refreshed in our faith every single week. I know I struggle to believe the gospel on a daily basis. I'm guessing you do too. But man, it's a joy to gather with you week in and week out. It's a joy to see you come and take communion and to take it with you. To be reminded of what our Savior has done and that one day he will come again. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come forward this morning. Come and partake in this teaser trailer of the wedding feast to come. Come and eat. Come and drink. Now, we would have actual wine here this morning, but Fairfax County Public Schools won't let us. So one day, maybe in the future, we'll be able to do that. But even as you come this morning to eat the bread and drink this cup, let's rejoice together in what Christ has done. You eat this bread and drink this cup, may you taste and see that our Lord, our God, our Redeemer is good. And for those of you that don't yet know Christ, excuse me, I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. I'm grateful that God's brought you. He's at work in your life or you wouldn't be here today. Maybe you came because somebody invited you to come. Maybe you just, something's been going on. You've been checking out who Jesus is. Or maybe you're just coming to just please a friend this morning. I don't really care why you think your motivation is to be here. God's at work in your life. And so instead of coming forward this morning to take communion, I just want you to think about that this morning wherever you sit. And if you're ready to begin that relationship with Christ, even if you don't fully understand what that means, but you know you need Jesus, tell God that this morning. Wherever you sit in your seat, tell him that this morning. And then there's a room full of people that would love to help you understand what it actually looks like to know Christ and follow Christ. You don't have to have all, your, all the answers to every question you possibly have. As Eric reminded us again this morning, all you need is need. 
So come this morning open-handed. Come this morning to Jesus if you don't yet know him. For those of you that will come forward, there are tables at the front, tables at the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and celebrate the fact that this is just a small little glimpse of the joy we get to have together when Christ comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks that you, by your grace, have sent Christ our Savior to redeem us from our sin, to make us new. And so God, I pray this morning that you would again give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we might fix our eyes on Jesus. Give us faith to believe this morning that Jesus is exactly who he said he is and did exactly what he said he came to do, to rescue, to redeem, to restore. And God, I pray that whether that's for the very first time this morning, that you would bring men and women from death to life, even in this moment. But God, I also pray for us that have believed for days, weeks, years, decades, that God, we would fix our eyes freshly on you today. And when we read a story or hear a story about Jesus turning water into wine, we wouldn't just shrug, shrug our shoulders and say, that's cool. It would cause us to look forward to the day when we will sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb, enjoying good food and drink, perfect food and perfect drink, drink with our perfect Savior as we rest in our perfection that he's provided for us. God, help us to rejoice today as we wait for that day. We love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray this all in Christ, our Redeemer's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. <laughs>